We've been talking about words that are lost in translation. And this morning we're going to think of worship. Um, we're going to learn a couple things about worship. And the first being that worship is service rather than singing oriented. When we think of worship, we think most naturally of worship teams and singing as is appropriate. And in the Bible, worship is something where we call attention to God. We praise, we worship him, and, and that's certainly part of it. But the words that are translated worship in the Bible actually are more service-oriented than singing-oriented. The word translated worship actually comes from a word meaning wages. And so it's to work for wages or to perform work as a public uh, offering. What in the Old Testament, the words for worship describe the way or what Jewish priests did when they served in the temple. So anything having to do with priests going to the temple and performing the different duties in the temple, that is the image of what the Bible is referring to from an Old Testament perspective when it talks about worship. Um, Paul takes this language that was originally applied to the temple and would be really restricted to priests and broadens it to include us as we do things and as we try to honor God with our lives and with our words. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what he ends up saying. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, passage tells us to do a couple of things. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. When a Jewish priest would have reported for duty, they had times where they served in the temple and then they had times where they didn't. Many of them had jobs on the side. When they arrived to the temple, they would present themselves to God for the service. And that is the image when it says, offer or present yourselves to God. It meant to make a decisive dedication of themselves as worshipers who were stepping forward to do what God wanted them to do. There were different responsibilities that they would have. Um, it's interesting that in the new covenant sense, now that was in the old covenant, in the new covenant sense, offerings don't consider, they're not really involved taking the lives of animals. It's not taking any lives. But what we are to do is not to take life, but to offer our lives to him in service, to present ourselves to God and basically to say, God, I want you to be who you want me to be, certainly. And we think of a graduation when moving from one phase of life to another, it would be certainly in the minds of uh, graduates who are here, all of us who have graduated, you know, God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? And uh, certainly as wise as we consider God, I want to give myself to you. 
I want to experience what your purposes for me are. And with that, we trust God to guide. That's what it means to present ourselves to him. It says, this is your spiritual act of worship. The word spiritual, actually, it, it comes from the word that we get the word logical from. It says, this is your logical service of worship. And the sense is, it's your rational or reasonable. When you consider God's mercy, the logical, rational, reasonable things to do is to say, God, I give you myself and I ask that you would use me as you would see fit. It's reasonable in light of the fact that God is merciful. When you understand what God is like, it's not frightening to put your life in his hands. You're putting your life in the hands of someone whose hands are good. You can trust yourself to these hands. So when we understand what God is like, what his purposes are, it is reasonable and rational and logical to give yourself to him. The clearer you see God, the clearer you understand his mercy and his purposes, the more natural, reasonable, and rational it is to say, God, I want to serve you. And that's an ongoing thing for us. We go through our lives, we hear things about God that make us think, well, you know, if I give myself to God, he's going to make me do something that I don't want to do and he wants me to do. And it can be frightening to put ourselves in his hands. But what Paul is saying if you really understand what he's like, the most normal, rational, reasonable, and logical thing you could do, if you see him accurately, is to say, God, use me. I want to serve you. I want to be the person you want me to be. Um, that's the sense for reasonable and rational. And as so, there's a couple things. Spiritual excludes any external ritual worship in which the heart and mind and will of the worship worshiper are not involved. So the thing that spiritual excludes is, on the one hand, any kind of external ritual go-through-the-motions thing which doesn't engage the heart. That's excluded by the sense of spiritual. And on the other hand, spiritual also excludes worship which consists only of interior emotions and feelings, however exalted, unaccompanied by outward obedience. So it's not merely internal or not merely external. It's a combination of the both. In light of our understanding of who God is, what we do then as a reasonable, rational service of worship, we present ourselves to him. And the operative thing here then, it begins with the renewing of your mind. You really can't offer yourself to somebody you don't know. And that's not a one-time thing, but an ongoing way to learn about God, to make room for him, especially his commitments to you. Not necessarily, not merely his commandment, but his commitments, his promises to you. As these promises, you put your faith in them, over time, it begins to develop a want to, to present yourself to him and to be who you want us to be. And what Paul ends up saying, what you'll do, if you'll do that, 
it indicates that at the end of your life, you'll be able to look back and testify to God's will, that it's good, pleasing, and perfect. If you put your life into God's hands, what you will experience, now it, it might not look it all the time, but when the dust clears, and when you're with him, what you'll see, that decision to put your life in his hands was the best one you ever made because it led to experiencing that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. That's what Paul ends up saying. And so when we present ourselves to him, it's not just internal feelings, and it's not just an outward kind of ritualistic offering, but both. Um, worship is service rather than singing-oriented, and also, but as we do think of worship, it's, Singing certainly played an important role in the early church. And when we think of worship, that's what we think about, isn't it? You know, and worship is singing. The word, again, the word for worship is service. That's the basic word. But in the, as we think about worship, we think about singing. And that certainly is a part of how the church has functioned. And it's an important part of things. It's interesting that that singing played an educational role in the early church, that's what it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, songs played an important part in the early church and still in the church today, we'll, we'll have some, we'll begin to have and reintroduce worship on an occasional basis. It's going to start next week with um, baptism. We'll have worship as part of our experience next week. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs included Old Testament Psalms, which were Old Testament Psalms. If you look at the book of Psalms, those are Jewish songs. And so, the singing would have included putting those things to music, and they would have sung the psalms. Um, they were Jewish songs. We, we've talked about this before. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we hear that, and many assume that Jesus was saying, God, you know, here I am on the cross, and it feels like you've abandoned me. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of a Jewish song, Psalm 22. And that song goes on to talk about somebody who suffered, but somebody as well who had experienced God's victory on the far side of that suffering. And I think, and if you look at Psalm 22, that's what Jesus is doing. He's singing the first line of a Jewish song. Songs have an ability, don't they? to help us remember truths in a unique way. I heard it said that, that, that individuals, when they, in fact, I've experienced some, when they are in their last moments, some of the things that are easiest to remember are the things that, even spiritually, in terms of some songs, if a lot of things are forgotten, sometimes songs can be remembered, and the kind of songs that we sing in church growing up, sometimes those are the things that we end up thinking about as we kind of move from this world into the next world. Um, 
But it's interesting and important to understand that songs weren't just nice in the early church. They were necessary. The Bible, well, in the early church, Bibles weren't available. You know, Bibles were, Old Testament Bibles were on big, long scrolls. And they were very expensive. And so not everybody had them. At the synagogue, they had they had these scrolls, but it wasn't like it is today. All of us have, we have a copy of the Bible. But in the early church, that would not have been the case. So in an oral culture, what needs to happen then? You need to figure out how to communicate things in such a way as we can remember them. And so the way they did that was through Songs. Songs would incorporate truth, and they were not just nice ways to sing things to God. They were ways that you could remember Christian truth. And in an oral culture, these songs were necessary, not just nice. They were a way that you could incorporate true things into your mind in such a way as to remember them. Um, They were means by which new covenant truths could be learned and internalized. Next to the preaching of the word and the participation in the sacraments, the heart of worship was this spiritual singing. Um, It was a way, as it says here, for the word of Christ to dwell in them richly. That's why they sang. Not just to express an emote to God, but it was a way in which the word of God could dwell in them richly as they heard these songs and sang them and heard them and sang them. The thoughts in these songs would stay within them. They would remember them and they would end up having the ability to renew their mind with respect to new covenant realities about God, Jesus and grace and mercy. And it was a way for them to be able to get these things in their mind. And as we've talked about, that is a basic thing to being who God wants us to be. It's as we have our mind renewed, it leads us to present our bodies, which leads us to be able to experience his good, pleasing and perfect will. Um, there was a, another passage that talks about the same type of thing, the place of worship. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The focus here is again not just merely on singing things to God, but on thinking true thoughts about God. Um, I think when Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, why would he say that? It seems like an odd thing. Don't get loaded, but sing to God. And it's you know, it, why would he say that? I think Paul's thinking of a passage from Isaiah that helps us to understand what he was thinking, what he was encouraging, and what he was warning them about. It talks in Isaiah, and this is what it says, describing a time when those who were speaking for God were not doing so accurately. 
they were tasked to hear from God and to reflect what God had told them. And what ends up happening in the time that Isaiah writes is that they weren't doing that. And as Isaiah writes, he describes dysfunctional representatives as being drunk. Look what it says. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. And the the implication here is not really that they were, now they might have been physically loaded, but that's not the image. It's, it's likening somebody who is fall down drunk and applying that image to individuals who are supposed to be speaking on God's behalf. They're not saying the right thing. Their words are careless. They're stumbling around and, and they just can't be depended on to accurately reflect the truth of God. That seems to be what, what Paul's getting at. He ends up saying, they, uh, all the tables, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions, all the tables are covered with vomit. <laughs> it's not a spot with filth. Really not a pretty picture. What it's describing, though, is somebody who, and I'll try not to be too graphic, somebody who is up front and supposed to proclaim God's truth, and it's like, Bleh! you know, just throwing up on the table. There's just not a lot there that you can really take in. Uh, being drunk on wine is a way of describing, and I think here's the point, sightless seers. Being drunk on wine is a way of describing, in Isaiah's time, sightless seers. Those who claim to speak for God are blinded and unable to do so. And then you know what he ends up doing? Isaiah ends up talking about what ends up happening. What does worship look like? What does church look like when those tasked to speak for God don't do so? And here's what he ends up saying. These people come near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What ends up happening, the worship in Isaiah's time looked like this. People saying the right things, they are honoring God with their lips, but they're distancing their hearts. When you don't understand, apparently, when we don't understand what God is like, that he's merciful, What we end up doing, we end up being tempted to say the right things to God, but not the real things. We end up saying what we think God wants us to say. So our mouth proclaims things that are nice to proclaim. But what Isaiah is talking about, the mouth is close, but what ends up happening, there is distancing the real things that are in the heart. And the the problem with that is God is aware, not just of what we say, but on what we are truly thinking. Those entrusted with the responsibility of being seers were blinded. Therefore, a sleep fell characterized by close mouths, but distanced hearts. And in Isaiah's time, well, with Jesus too, That's a problem. Um, Jesus ended up saying the same thing, describing hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is? It's when we come before God and we say all the things that we think God wants to hear. And it's appropriate that we would praise him. However, 
to just say nice things to God and not real things is not worship. God wants us, all of us, to come to him, and he wants us to, to be open with him. Verbal professions that are out of alignment with heart confessions is what Isaiah warns against. There's a couple things. I saw a, a, a worship um, program that was really well done, really well. It was the, the music was tremendous, and the lights were low, and there was even smoke and fog that were being used, and it was very touching, and people were really, really caught up in an attitude of worship, sobbing and crying, and that feels like something that honors God, and it could honor him. But if it was only this deep, and if individuals were thinking, all I have to do is say nice things to God, and the deep questions that I have, God will overlook that God really likes it when we kind of say nice things to him. And that's what Isaiah warns against. Using praise and worship sometimes, again, it's appropriate, but not at the exclusion of saying real things to God. Interesting, um, I've heard this said, in a, in a time of worship, the individuals who were up there said, okay, now we're going to worship God. And I want you to take all your other thoughts and set them aside. All your worries and all your concerns, I want you to set them aside and let's come before God truly. Can you come up with, can you come before God truly and set aside your worries and doubts? That's what Isaiah's warning against. Again, is worship appropriate? Absolutely. But don't fall for that. You know, when you come before God, God doesn't really like it when you say nice things to him, but then he says, oh, geez, I wish you wouldn't complain to me about your, your issues. I wish you wouldn't tell me about what you're sad about. What God is saying, I need to hear about all of you. Don't just come before me and sing nice words and think that that's what I really like. Sometimes we get the idea that God is a little bit insecure. You know, we need to say nice things to God so he'll feel okay about being God. You know what I mean? So we sing nice things, and, you know, Sunday's God's best day. You know, people sing nice things to him, and he feels better about being God. And then during the week, he might get a little concerned because we're not talking to him as much as we should. But then the following Sunday, we get him. You know, it's really kind of funny. That really doesn't make much sense, does it? God understands us too deeply, and he wants us to honor him, but he wants us to be honest with him as well. Um, a, a focus on set all your stuff aside. Now I can understand that's well-intended, and I'm not blowing. It, it is well-intended. Think about God, but the implication is troubling to me, troubling. That God likes it when we say nice things to him. He likes it more than when we say real things to him, and that is false. In fact, saying nice things at the expense of real things, Isaiah warned about that. That can be dangerous. So, yeah. Um, it says with Jesus, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears 
to the ones who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Interesting, the word, when it's used the word offered up, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That's the same word that is used to describe when priests offered up animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. So here's my point. The new covenant equivalent of old covenant sacrifices. So if we want to offer, present our sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, those sacrifices were animals, dead animals. In the new covenant, it's not dead animals we offer up to God. You know what we offer them? Prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. And when we come before God honestly, telling him about the things we're concerned about, like a Memorial Day, when we're missing somebody who's passed away. We don't need to think God doesn't want me to come before him and continue to think about how sad I am. That's exactly what he wants. He wants honesty. He understands what's happening deeply. And as we come to him and as we pour out our hearts to him, God accepts that as worship. You offer up, and again, it doesn't mean you have to be melancholy all the time, but when you are, be honest with him. God doesn't like nice praise better than deep honesty. He doesn't. In fact, to use nice praise in order to submerge deep honesty, it's not only that he doesn't like it, he'll warn us about it. He knows you too well to allow you just to be nice to him. He wants your honesty. He understands you very deeply, and he wants a relationship with us. So, as we think about where do we land with here, singing and learning were indistinguishable in the early church. I think we could say the elevation of emotion is not what worship was like in the early church. There was emotion involved, but it was educational not just emotional. When people are led to believe that God smiles when they praise him, this can make it hard to fathom that pouring out your pain to God is a deep expression of worship. God delights in wholehearted service, not just lip service. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, it's Memorial Day. And we think of those who have gone. And our hearts are heavy. And you would have us come before you. You came to this world so that you could sympathize with our grief. Jesus, you felt grief. You understood it. You were a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. You would have us come before you, understanding that you understand what it's like to feel sad. In fact, you came so that you could understand that. Being without those that we depended on and loved is lonely. And you would have us identify with your sympathy. You understand it. It doesn't make the grief go away, but grief is a little bit easier to bear when we don't bear it alone. And anyone here, either in this place or 
listening virtually, struggling with grief, you would have them recognize Jesus, that you sympathize with them and you come alongside them. You would have us learn to express those feelings and sentiments to the Father. Thanks for that. Thanks for your sympathy and for understanding us deeply. Continue to allow us to come before you honestly and wholeheartedly, uh, serving you wholeheartedly. Thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.